Thank you very much. PJ's away with Chad, the sound guy. They went on what PJ called a man trip. <laughs> I said it was a boy trip. <laughs> and guess who's driving my car on this man trip? I don't know how these things happen. It happens like in, in three seconds. It's like, boom, 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 boom. My keys are gone. And it just, it just happens. Story. Luke chapter 20. We are making our way through the New Testament, specifically through the gospel of Luke. We have made it to the 20th chapter. As you finish turning there, I'll ask the Lord for more of his good grace. Heavenly Father, now thank you that we have not been left as orphans, but we have the word of God. We have also your presence and your presence in the word of God. For in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. So in a very real sense, Lord, we're we're in your presence, we're in your thinking, your thoughts, your will, your good pleasure. It's all wrapped up in your word. Help us to remember that as we're reflecting on these great truths in Christ's name. Amen. A couple weeks ago, Fox News was rerunning their actual coverage of the events from 9-11 in commemoration of that tragic and sad day in 2001. Very gripping footage. I don't know if you saw that. President Bush was addressing the nation in the moments following the attack, and I noticed something. First, he spoke to us, directing his remarks to all Americans and to especially to families who were grieving and hurting because they had lost loved ones. A lot of confusion. They didn't even know how many people had perished. His tone was comforting, his words reassuring, encouraging, his countenance very sympathetic. Then there was a shift, a pause, and then he refocused his attention He began speaking to the terrorists. His tone, deadly serious. His words, harsh and threatening. His eyes were burning with anger. One man, two different messages and two very different audiences. This morning, we have entered Passion Week. Luke 20, we are in Tuesday of Passion Week, where Jesus is in the temple teaching and healing, and really engaging his enemies, because this is the day that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the lawyers and all of them get together and become friends in an effort to take Jesus down. This is Tuesday. On Thursday evening will be the Last Supper, the beginning of Friday morning, and culminating at 9 a.m. on Friday. Good Friday for us, bad Friday for him. The cross. And so here we are. It's Tuesday. He's got a couple days left here, and he passionately embraces this destiny to lay down his life for the sins of the world. It's called Passion Week because of the passion, passionate way that Jesus embraces this destiny that he fully knows about. He is predicting it, he is in control of it, and he is talking about it, and he's passionately embracing that. Well, this morning, as you'll see, well, as we have seen to the disciples, Jesus is warm, patient, and comforting. You know, do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Trust in God. Trust in me, too. My father's house are many rooms. There's a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you'll be also. Comforting, sympathetic, caring. But this morning, he's not talking to his disciples. He's talking to devilish, 
opponents who wish to murder him. So you have to take that into your thinking and receive them as words to his enemies. Jesus doesn't speak that way to anybody else except the hypocrites who are trying to kill him. And so as you hear these words, if you're a first-time visitor or you're not a Christian or you're a seeker, just know, oh, our God is compassionate and merciful and kind and gracious to the undeserving. But when those who know full well who he is and oppose him to his face and trying to take him down, well, he's got words for them. And this morning's text are those words. And so here we go in verse 9. Now, I want you to picture the snarling Sadducees and the proud Pharisees because they're, they're all in the middle of this verbal war. And they're saying, how about this? How about this? They're baiting him. And they're having this conflict. And in the middle of that, pause, boom, here's your text. He went on to tell the people this parable. I've got a story for you, he says. A man planted a vineyard, rented it out to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent a third, and they wounded him. And threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then? Will the owner of this vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, well, they were catching on. They said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written in Psalm 118? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests, the bad guys, looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this story about them. But they were afraid of the people. So... Let's focus there for this morning's uh, reflection. The religious bad boys may have a starring role in this story. You know a parable by now. A parable is a kind of a down-to-earth story to illustrate a heavenly truth. It's just an example, an analogy, a metaphor. So he's saying, hey, this conflict is reminding me of something. Hmm, a story. See if you can find yourself in it. And they could. They did find it. In fact, let's talk about this story, not in terms of their starring role, the bad guy's starring role, but actually it's a story about God. It's God's story, after all, it always is. And so I want to kind of discuss this story with you in terms of three characteristics that are screaming in this story about God to me. Number one, God's sovereignty. Number two, God's mercy. And number three, God's judgment. Let's begin with God's sovereignty, and I think maybe a good idea to begin is to define what I mean by sovereignty. To be sovereign is to possess supreme power and authority, to have complete control and the ability to accomplish whatever he pleases. Perhaps the best illustration and definition of sovereignty of God came from the lips of King Nebuchadnezzar, that ancient Babylonian king who God had a smack down. And after he smacked him down, he came to his senses. And here's how Daniel 4 records it. He says, after my ordeal was over, said King Nebuchadnezzar, 
After I came to my senses, having God humble me, I gave God, the eternal most high, the praise. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is forever. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angelic hosts of heaven and among the people of earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing all these things? So, first of all, God is sovereign. He's calling the shots. This is his story. This isn't a story. So he's looking at them and saying, just so you know, first of all, this isn't your story, bad guys. This is my story. This is God's story. You have a part to play, but you're not calling the shots. God's calling the shots. Think about it. God is sovereign. God's the owner. It's his earth. It's his property. It's his vineyard that he planted for his purposes. The soil belongs to him. The vines belong to him. The grapes are his. The rent is due him. The workers are his tenants, simply stewarding what he has planted. The servants are his, speaking his words, doing his business, coming in his name. It's his son, the heir, who comes, calling on behalf of Of the owner's will. And it is he at the end of the story who comes to execute judgment. And it is he who triumphs against all who oppose him. Everything according to his plan, it's all about him. And so Jesus making that straight. Just so you know, boys, Pilate not in control. You're not in control. My disciples who are trying to prevent this from happening, Peter with the sword... And may it never be, Lord, God forbid, when Jesus is telling Peter what he's about to do. No, I lay down my life. I've come to do this. And you will cooperate with my plan. And you will bear responsibility for your role as well. I'm going to talk about more how to make sense of that. How God can bring responsibility and charge them with blame when it's God's plan in the first place. Then this is how he's going to redeem the earth. And to people who believe. Here's the paraphrase. Jesus turns to the people and says, you know what? This whole conflict here, you're reminding me of a little story. So, there's this certain man who plants a certain vineyard. He leased it out to certain workers to tend the vines and manage the grounds and run the business for it. And so right away, they all know, the Old Testament refers to Israel is a vineyard over and over and over again. So the moment he opens his mouth and says, you know what? There's this owner. He plants a vineyard. Hmm. And he's got some folks who are in charge of the vineyard. I wonder who that could be. Well, they know immediately. Israel's the vineyard. The owner who planted it, God, who's gone away, out of sight, out of mind, apparently, The godless leaders are the contracted workers responsible to cultivate the vineyard for the owner's satisfaction. The messengers are sent to collect the fruit. They are the prophets, the heir, Christ. And the end of the story speaks for itself. Israel is planted by God, first of all. And a vineyard is a fitting symbol. Now think of it. I mean... Josephus, who's a historian, who we get a lot of information about that time from, writes that there was an impressive, sprawling, golden grapevine engraved across the temple doors and above the Holy of Holies. It's all about the vine. God says, Israel, you are my vineyard. You are the vine. Genesis 12, God calls a man out of nowhere, out of really Mesopotamia, which is eastern Turkey, 800 miles. He says, I got some place to plant you, Abraham. You are the progenitor of a race, a vineyard of people. You are the first seed. You are the shoot, Abraham. From you, I am going to bless the world with joy. But it's all about starting with that first seed, which was barren and dead. And so was his wife. And he says, I will touch your bodies and I will make this a supernatural Vineyard, but a vineyard nonetheless, it will always be about this vine. Abraham, 
and one vine in particular. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, King David. Just one vine. And it goes another 14 names to Mary to Jesus. It's all about planting a vineyard. Why? Wine is a metaphor for joy in the Old Testament. Gabriel announces to Mary, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. The vineyard, the wine, the joy. The first miracle Jesus does is turn water to wine. I've come to bring joy. This vineyard is about joy. That's a fitting symbol for the messianic nation through whom the Savior of the world will come. What did he tell Abraham there in Genesis chapter 12? He said, through you, through your vineyard, through your lineage, through your vine, the whole world will be blessed. And he says, "Uh, Lord, I don't know if you realize how old I am and how old Sarah is, you know. And the Lord says, I will bless you. Your offspring will be too numerous to count. And he calls him out and he says, Abraham, look up at the stars. Can you count all those for me? That's going to be the grapes that are going to come. And not only is Jesus going to be the fruit of that vine in bringing the joy He's not only the joy giver and the joy bringer, he is the sin bearer. And those grapes will be crushed to fill the cup that he will call the cup of his blood of the new covenant. And so, yeah, God planted a vineyard, all right. A vineyard that would bring joy through the fruit of a lineage of people to bring a savior in the world to bring joy. And then on the other hand, a sin bearer who on the night he was betrayed, looked and took a cup of the vine and said, this is the joy giver's blood, the basis for the salvation and redemption and gospel to go out to the whole earth. Yeah, God planted a vineyard. And this is all God's doing. All God's doing. He's in control for sure. So, but as highly honored and privileged as this vineyard and its workers are, I mean, all through the Old Testament, even Moses says, to whom has God ever treated anybody like you guys? Which nation could say the Lord is our God? Which nation could say he's covenanted himself with us? Who could say this? Who could say he's the God of Jacob? He goes around saying, I'm the God of Jacob. He said, do you realize how blessed you are? And the answer was no. Well, Jesus telling the story about this vineyard that's not working, and it's a familiar song. Listen to it in Isaiah 5, 700 years before Jesus is born. Now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. Now let me tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will tear it down and let it be destroyed. And then it just says in verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 5, The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord. But instead he, he looked for sweet juice and and fruit, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he saw and heard cries of violence. God is the owner. Israel's the planted vineyard, and the leaders are the caretakers. The King James has an old British archaic word, husbandmen, just means farmer. And really, if we were to use uh, contemporary Vernacular, it would be viticulturist. That's what they're called now. But since viticulturist is so hard to say, we will keep it with farmers. <laughs> that a deal? Try saying it. Go ahead, viticulturist. 
That was a nightmare. <laughs> Israel had all types of viticulturists. They were faithful. Now I want to say it. Oh, that's crazy. There were good ones and bad ones. They had lawgivers like Moses, conquerors like Joshua, judges like Gideon, prophets like Elisha and Elijah, kings like David and Solomon and Hezekiah, scribes like Ezra, reformers like Nehemiah, and revivalists like Josiah. So there were some pretty good caretakers. But by and large, a lot of those shepherds were just self-indulgent hypocrites, wolves in sheep's, sheep's, sheep's clothing. So this leads us to our second point, to God's mercy. And now here's the paraphrase about God sending his servants, his good servants, to these leaders, these caretaker farmers. And these are the bad guys. Here's the paraphrase. So this owner, though out of sight, certainly still existed, of course, and sent his men at harvest time to collect what was due him from his own vineyard. But the tenants gave the first messenger a good beating and sent him away empty-handed, no rent, no fruit, nothing. The owner gave the rebel tenants a second chance, but it was only more of the same. They cussed the second guy out, robbed him, stripped him, beat him within an inch of his life, and sent him away, mocking him without so much as a single grape. Still, the owner tried again with number three. This time they wounded him severely and left him in a ditch, hoping him to die. The word beat, there are three verbs for what, how these tenant farmers were treating the messengers. The word beat, darrow in the Greek, to beat, to flog, to whip. The second verb is to treat shamefully, atimazo in the Greek. It means to dishonor, to shame, to publicly disgrace. The third verb Jesus uses to describe these vexing vitriculturists, traumatizo, from where we get the word to traumatize. Elijah was chased into the wilderness by the monarchy. Jeremiah was thrown into a well. Isaiah Tradition says, was sawn in two. Isaiah, your beautiful book of Isaiah, 66 chapters of Isaiah. That man, they took the tenants, took him, and sawn him asunder, as Hebrews chapter 11 says. Zechariah, they just killed him right at the altar of the temple, stoned him to death. John the Baptist, Oh, you nobody talks like that to my wife, even though she is my brother's wife, well, or my sister, or I forget. But anyway, you can't talk to me that way. I'll chop your head off. And he did. Nice little tenant, king, quasi-king over Israel. Yeah. So what does this show me? Instead of punishing those who reject the prophet messengers, God gives them further opportunity. God is the second chance, third chance, fourth, fourth chance. And when? From the beginning of time. He could have just said, well, you sinned, you died, and everybody in you, folks. Eve, you were deceived. Adam, you just flat out disobeyed. And everybody in your loins, as it were, all the seed for human beings that I programmed, you have now just been slaughtered. They're gone. Where did I say there was a second chance? I said, you eat, you touch, you die, period. I didn't say, well, then I'll, you know, think up this plan for you. I am not under any obligation to come at you with a second chance. This is who I am. And look at how he actually will redeem us. It's crazy. Unbelievable mercy. What's up with these tenants? Why are they acting like that? Well, it says the owner's not visible. He's an absentee landlord. Oh, he maybe he's dead. 
Let's just cross our fingers, man. We haven't heard from him for a while. You know, he's getting up in age. You know, if he dies and if he's not there, this is ours. Oh, we got nobody over our shoulders telling us how to live, telling us how to work the land, having to give him back something. We could just do whatever we want, however we want to do it. We'd be free if only that old guy dead. You see? Well, here comes a messenger. Oh, you're reminding us that maybe he might be alive. We don't want to talk to you. We want you to go away. Because if we can maintain this place for three years without paying rent, it belongs to us. Hebrew law. And so they were hoping for that. But God's heart is revealed in this. The owner's been gone a long time. They hope he's dead. But here's why he's been gone a long time. Second Peter chapter 3 says it this way. Most importantly, I want you all to remember this. I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come. Mocking the truth and following their own desires, they'll say, whatever happened to the promise of this owner coming again? For before the times of our ancestors, everything remained the same since the world was first created. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the owner, and a thousand years is like a day. The owner isn't really being slow to come and collect what's due him. No, he's patient with you, not wishing anyone to perish. The owner is giving them further opportunity, not because he's soft or weak, but because he has a heart of love. Perhaps now, if I incarnate myself in the name of my son, and I come, my son comes in my name, perhaps now they will be reconciled to me. Long-suffering is a word that describes God's nature. Here's what it means. Patient endurance while being provoked. Ability to endure being persecuted or mistreated without thought of retaliating. Extending opportunity over and over and over again for the offending party to get it right. Martin Luther said it this way. If I were God, that great reformer of the 1500s, he said, if I were God and the world treated me as it treated him, I would kick that wretched thing to pieces. I like that guy. (laughs) Long-suffering. Think about it. And it wasn't just the leaders, friends. It was the grapes themselves. He's been patient not only with the leaders of the grapes, but the grapes. He takes that vine, he plants it. He roots it out of the mud and mire of Egypt. He parts the Red Sea for it. He carries these vines on eagles' wings to Mount Sinai. And along the way, he checks for a harvest of sweet joy, sweet gratitude, sweet appreciation for what I did. I just busted you out of Egypt with ten plagues. I'm going in front of you like a pillar of fire. When it gets too hot for you, I become from the fire at night, the cloud by day. When you need water, hit the rock, out comes the water. When you need food, down from heaven, pick it up. It's yours. And then he comes around, can I check here for a little joy, a little gratitude, a little thanksgiving? You know what he gets? Grumbling, murmuring, and a romanticizing of the old days. Oh, when we were rooted in the muck and mire of Egypt's slave pits. Oh, that's when we had it, when the manure was as high as our knees. Wasn't, weren't those the good old days? That's what he gets when he comes to get what's due him, a little thanksgiving. Oh, they don't stop there. Then they decide, let's have a party. Moses been away. And they make a golden calf. And they get sexually immoral. They get drunk. And Aaron says to them, 
Hear, O Israel, this is the one who plucked you out of the muck and mire of the slave pits. This is the one who brought you safely here. This is the one who deserves your worship. Let's sing and bow down to this work of our own hands. Here it is. And they sang and they danced and they got drunk and they had sex in front of God and the whole world and all the angels. God says, Moses, step back on a torch that vine. Several times he said, step away. I don't need this particular branch. I can raise up from your body. You are a Hebrew. I can raise up from your body just the same thing. I'm God here. I can just change the way I'm writing this book. He said that to Moses. Why? To let everybody know you've committed a capital crime. I'm not being, you know, I'm not being, uh, what's the word? Vindictive. I'm not losing my temper. I'm not saying, oh, step back. I can't take it anymore. I'm going to incinerate you all. He's wanting to show us, just so you know, you've done something so worthy of complete annihilation. You have rebelled against the living God after all I've done for you. Just so you know, every step you take, every breath you take after this is pure, unadulterated grace. You deserve to die. That's a lot of years to be patient. Patient, 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 patient. And now where are we? The owner's son in the story. That's where we are. 1,500 years from the grumbling comes the owner's son. Here I am. And he's knocking at the door of the tenant's little dwelling. And they're looking at him. And they're plotting. And they're saying, that's the heir. But you know what? You're going to find out that it's all this crazy mercy that actually they're going to find out, oh my gosh, we are pawns in God's big play that God said in Isaiah, who they saw in two. Isaiah said, oh, this was all the Lord's idea. In fact, he said, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and the Lord to make his life a guilt offering. It's God's plan. When they come to get him, first of all, he's been saying for chapters and chapters and chapters, we're going to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. They're going to flog me. They're going to spit on me. It's going to be Gentiles there. I'm going to be handed over, over and over and over again. He says, but you know, they're going to destroy this temple three days later. I'll raise it up. I'll raise it up. He knows what's happening. When he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, they come, he goes out to them, and he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And they go down when he says, I am. He uses the divine prerogative. The same I am that said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, I am who I am. He uses that word, and when he says, I am, the Roman cohort go down on their face. You want to talk about slain in the spirit? <laughs> That's the only place I find slain in the spirit and then the enemies of the Lord. Moving on. I'll let you guys catch that later when you're driving home. <laughs> so how can God place blame on people that are doing his will? Well, think of it this way. I think of it this way. God has a cosmic casting call. He says, I need folks to play out my play. I need some heroes. I need some heroines. I need some losers. I need some rebels. I need some good guys. I need some bad guys. I need some traitors. I need some loyal people. I need some kings. I need some prophets. I need some servants. What role would you wish to play? Your response to God and truth 
is your selection for the role that you will play. And therefore, since God has a plan, you have a choice. You play your role and you are responsible for it. Now, what if I'm stuck in a role I don't like, like one of the bad guys? Ah, you can repent. He needs those in the story. He needs really wicked guys who turn. Manasseh was the most wicked king that Israel ever had. And at the end, he sees the light. And he says, you know what about this role I'm playing? I don't dig it anymore. I want to be one of the good guys. God goes, okay, you're still breathing? Come on. I need one of these guys. Your role is your decision. And you will be responsible. But know this. God chose you to play that role. You're playing that role. And you've got a full choice. And we can't figure that all out. But it's true. God has a plan. We have a choice. We're responsible for the role we play. Listen, one more quote from Spurgeon. Then we'll final point. God's judgment. God's mercy. If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem you. If you bury him, he will rise again to bring resurrection. Jesus' love made manifest through the most unlikely of ways. And so, my friend, if you see this, this um, you know, vindictive God in Jesus saying, you know, when the owner comes back, what is he going to do? He's going to kill them. Oh, just know how long he's been waiting and waiting and waiting and what he's been enduring. And know this, that the son is not there really in actuality to collect a payment. He's at the door fully knowing I'm not going to collect a payment. I'm going to be making a payment because you, my friends, will murder me and I will provide the payment for all of Israel's sins and everybody who belongs to me and anybody who would like to belong to me to be justified before God. Now that brings us to God's judgment and our final point. While God is crazy merciful, he's crazy just, too. He's crazy holy. And those who choose to play the lead rebels who never repent must pay terrible consequences. So here's the last paraphrase. So after not paying rent, messing up the place, abusing and beating the messengers, killing the only son, Jesus asked the question, how do you guys think the story will end? Well, of course, yes. The owner comes back and destroys those wretches and hands the place over to more suitable tenants. The crowd gets where he's going and says, God forbid. But Jesus looks him square in the eye and he says, you know the line from Psalm 118 that you've been singing, the Hosanna song? Well, how about the stone that got rejected turning out to be the most important one in the building, the foundation stone? That would be me. Trip over me and you'll be utterly destroyed. If my wrath falls on you, you will be crushed. And so the judgment, you know, here's God's heart back in Luke 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often I have longed to gather you, your children, together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you'd have none of it. Ah, plan A, a motherly heart of a hen. Gather. Oh, come on under here. I want to protect you. I want to nurture you. I want to provide for you. That's plan A. He's writing in saying, oh, plan A, plan A. If only you understood the time of God's visit to you. The good thing I have. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you. Plans to give you a hope and a future, not to harm you. I came to save you. Plan A. Oh, but once you figure it out and you say, no, thank you, then we have to go to plan B. Because if I'm going to hang on a cross and bleed and die for you, and you still say, no, thank you, good enough, don't need you, then there's a plan B. And it'll be your doing. Because I did everything in my power unto my own blood. 
to stop you. But you chose. That's the part you want to play. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. So the heart of God isn't happy about anybody perishing. With tears on judgment day, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Not with a grin. Judgment will come in less than 40 years. In A.D. 70, 40 years from when Jesus is speaking thereabouts, Roman General Titus, as most of you know, will come in and destroy Jerusalem completely, just like Jesus is saying. The temple will be destroyed and leveled. The end of sacrifices, not for a week or a month or a year, forever. There's no more Judaism. Done. Well, I mean, you can say Judaism exists, but does it really? Where's the high priest? Where are the priests? Where are the sacrifices? If you don't have a blood sacrifice in Judaism, you don't have Judaism. Where's the temple? Jesus said, on the stone. The builders thought, oh, this stone doesn't fit. But actually, it turned out to be the most important stone, like the foundation cornerstone. If you don't have the Lord, you're going to have judgment. There's no Judaism left. There's no sacrifice today. There's no high priest. There's no temple. Jesus' words came to pass. Reject me, and it all comes to an end. But wait a second. What's happening? The doors of the temple are torn down. It's gone. Nothing. And then what? Wait. Well, there's a key. There's a key being passed to, to this fisherman. And this fisherman owed two more suitable tenants. Peter, James, and John, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And now this vine is going to go worldwide, not just Israel. Now it's going global. Peter, James, and John. Luke, Silas, Titus, Apollos. Those don't sound like nice Jewish boys from Brooklyn. (laughs) They're not. They're goyim in Hebrew. Goyim means Gentiles. He says, look, guys, you don't consider yourselves worthy to be my chosen people? All right. I've got tenants. They don't have names like you, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They got funny sounding names. And they don't abstain from pork chops. They eat BLTs. <laughs> and you know what? This thing's going all over the place. Ah, and let me say this before you think that the church replaces Israel. We do not replace them, as one writer put it. Without replacing Israel in God's eternal plan, the baton to offer the world salvation through a gospel, not based on the blood of lambs and bulls, but on the blood of the owner's son, this responsibility has been passed on to non-Jewish leaders. Once the gospel has done its work in the earth, God returns to Israel to reconcile them to himself. So at the end of the tribulation period, Israel has an eye-opening experience, and most of that nation becomes Christian. They receive God. They are honored as he has promised. But right now, they're on timeout. And who's running this show? They are on timeout. That is exactly where they are. They are on the bench. God says, okay, look, had it with you guys for a while. Look, put, put you guys here, Peter, James, and John, Paul, Paul the Apostle, really, all he needed to do is call one name. Because with that one name, the whole then known world was evangelized with a team led by one man. And that vine goes out. And look where it's budded. You. You're a wild vine. 
because you were grafted in to the natural vine of Israel. Israel's the root. We are the engrafted vine. And so, that's it. He says, I'm the rock, boys. Now, 700 years prior, they had an incident in the temple. They're building the first temple. They build this, they hewn this big rock. They get it in place. And they say, oh, it's too big. It doesn't work. So they put it to the corner of the temple. Then they figure out, it didn't work for what we thought. But this thing's the cornerstone. It's going to be the most important rock. But they rejected it first. And that became a proverb for the Messiah. That the Messiah would be thought, where does this fit? He doesn't fit. He's like, crucified Messiah, king, please. No, it doesn't fit. And it turns out that that stone, that that being, that that Lord, is the most important person to ever exist. He's the Lord. And he says, you trip over me. You're gone. And what do they say? The Bible says they figured it out and they plotted to kill him. Check that out. Before you go thinking Jesus is like, oh, so stern and harsh. They got his warning after all his God divine things that he had done in their sight. They get it. Oh, that's going to be us. We're the one the rock is going to fall on and crush. This is what this man is saying. And they continue and say, let's crush him. All right. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. Remember, I told you about being down in Mexico and I'm taking a walk along the beach. And I just noticed some scurrying of these little objects. And they were little hermit crabs. They were everywhere on the rocks. And as I walked, I told you about this, it just blew my mind that As I approached, I saw them all out there in the distance. And every time I took a step closer, even though they were quite a bit away, 10, 20 feet away, they would go underneath something. They knew that I was coming. And that blew my mind. Because why? How big can their brain be? (laughs) Their brain can't be very big. That's what I was thinking. If they're this big, their brain must be that big. Right, But yet, from 20 feet away, they said, danger, danger. <laughs> and they get it. They're smarter than the Pharisees, who are human beings with the Son of God. The owner has come through the body and virgin birth. There he is, the creator of all things. And he's saying, you mess with me, God's going to come back and kill you. They go, oh yeah? (laughs) Let him try. Oh, let's not laugh at them because we all have friends and family who are doing the same thing. Though God has sent conscience, creation, a church, Christian family, Christian spouse, Christian daddy, Christian mommy, friends at work, co-workers, sending, 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 away, 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 rude, 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 no, 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 he's dead, he doesn't live. Though you may not, my friend, have been the one with the hammer and the spikes, you, by your very behavior, prove that you are in full alignment with those who did the deed. Because you live like he's not there. You live like you wish he were not dead, were there. You live like you wish he was dead. What's different between you and the ones God says, God comes back, you will stand before him, and he will destroy you. Hermit crabs. Danger. Human beings. Huh? Where is he? I'm at Palm Drive Hospital visiting. I'm by the entrance. I'm walking out. In comes an ambulance. Big sirens. I stand back because I kind of like that kind of thing. In a good way. 
I wanted to see what was going on, and out comes a stretcher. A guy is straddled, an older gentleman. The EMT has straddled his chest on top of him, giving him resuscitation. He goes right by me. I'm standing there. The wife's trailing behind. The wife stands right next to me. I'm just standing there. They say, stop, wait. We'll get right back to you, ma'am. And I said, oh, is that your husband? Yes, it's my husband. We were just going to go to Italy. We're going to Italy. We were just at Safeway at Sebastopol. He just fell over. We were getting in the car. I said, well, they're working on him, right? They said, yeah, yeah, they're working on him. I said, ma'am, I'm a pastor. Can I pray? Absolutely not. I went, oh, we don't pray. I said, ma'am, this might be a good time to rethink that. And she wasn't impressed with that. So I walked off. I prayed. One minute later, my doctor, who I happen to know, because my doctor is Dr. Powers in Sebastopol, he was on call. He comes out. I'm standing here. She's standing there, right here. Dr. Powers says, I'm sorry. He's gone. And I walk away. The hermit crab would have said, please pray. First of all, for his physical life, but then I don't even really know where he's going. So I think a pastor strategically placed right at the second he's in the flux between heaven and earth. Hundreds and hundreds of these cases in my lifetime that I have seen. No fear. UCSF, one month ago, 24 years old. Cancer found in the shoulder, cut the shoulder off, gone at the shoulder. Me and him, alone. Hey, I just happen to be here. I got your name. It's a total God thing. You want to talk to me about the Lord? I've got my own way of thinking about God. I said, but, you know, they're saying that you, you're going to go home to hospice, right? Yeah. Do you want to, can I tell you a little bit about the Lord? Go ahead. Well, the Lord became a man and died on the cross for your sins. Are you interested in that? No. Why aren't you interested? You're going home to hospice care. What if something, what if the Bible's true? I'm happy with the way I've lived my life. I have no regrets. If God is so wonderful and loving, he'll accept me the way I am. I said, in the softest, kindest voice I, I could muster, oh, no, no, no. He accepts you the way you are, but you need an offering, a sin offering. Somebody paid your sins. Who's going to pay for your sins? You've sinned, right? He says, well, you call it sins. I don't call it sins. I said, well, what's important is God calls it. And then he got mad at me. I was like, can I pray? He goes, yeah, whatever. And I prayed. One week later, he's dead. He's there. Oh, am I pointing in the wrong direction? Because unless he had a change of heart, which is possible, and we all pray he did. This church thing isn't a game. People die and go one place or the other, and Jesus says, trip over me, you'll be destroyed. As a final warning in love, please don't trip over me, but come to me and build upon me that rock, and the storms of life will come, and you'll stand strong. You better be standing on the rock. And not opposing the rock. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that there but the grace of God go everyone in this room. We all really in our nature hate you. In our lower nature, 
We want to be the captain of our own destiny. We want to live our life and spend our money and do our thing. We're all that way in our sinful selves. And we all would say, at the worst, uh, get away from me. I don't want to pray. I don't pray. I don't love the Lord. And so, Lord, we don't look down on anybody because we've come out of that. And our hearts go out to those even in this room today that are flirting with disaster, (laughs) opposing the rock, thinking they're stronger than he. I pray, God, that you change our hearts and help us to be more evangelistic, more compassionate, more caring. Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. So as the ushers prop those doors open for a little airflow, always the first order of business, and especially with a message like this, is if you're a seeker and you don't know the Lord, and God forbid your heart just stop one beat and you're not reconciled, you'll have to stand and give an account to the rock. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond publicly because Jesus calls people publicly. You won't have to come down here. Just slip your hand up in a second. I'll ask you to do that. And Christians in this place will pray for you that you'll soften your heart. You'll humble yourself. Lest the rock fall upon you. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Maybe there's somebody here who just wants to get a clue as much as the hermit crab that knows, hey man, I I get a little scared about facing death without a savior. I'd like to give my heart to Christ and stop being so rebellious. If that's you, nobody's looking around, you just slip your hand up and say, today's my day. I'm done with this fight. He wins. You raise your hand up. And we'll pray for you. Amen. There's a hand of somebody who's very smart. A second and third hand. And fourth. And fifth. Nice. Anybody else? I'm still holding out. Amen. I'll repeat this prayer after me. It just kind of goes along with something you'll say in your own words later on. But everybody will pray together to help you. Dear Heavenly Father, I fear you. I don't want to live without you. To say God is dead. To be a part of the murder of the Son of God. Yet I know it was for my sins Christ died. I repent. I humble myself. I confess my sins to you. My God, my Savior, my Lord, I give you my life. Cleanse me and fill me with your spirit. Help me live all my days as your child. In Christ's name, I commit myself to you. Amen. And now, Father, I pray for the Christians among us. It just was stirred up, going through stuff. May they commit themselves to your care, casting their burdens upon you, for we know that you care for us. Let everybody in here be mindful of the mercy of God, not the wrath of God, for you've done everything in your power to save us from that wrath. Even when our hearts condemn us, we know, God, that God is even greater than our hearts. So, God, thank you for our salvation, which we thoroughly enjoy. Help us to know that the time is short for folks around us and to hold out the word of life, to snatch some from the fire, to live our lives lives in such a way to impact those who are lost and perishing. We commit this church, our missionary efforts, the speakers, everybody, Lord, to you. Your name would be glorified. And for the food we're about to receive, we ask your blessing. Thank you for all the busy hands that took time and money and energy to fix something special today. 
that we might all enjoy. And we ask your blessing, not only on the food, but on our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Now look at me, everybody. You five who raised your hands, the doors are now shutting. You are locked in. Just <laughs> Get up here and meet me. Do not leave this building without meeting me. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to give you a Bible, and we're going to get to know each other, all right? You can't do this alone, all right? That's what hermit crabs do. They're all together in one little flock. I don't know that flock's the right word, but... All right, let's enjoy. Hey, men, we need your help transforming this from a sanctuary into a dining commons. So see Pastor Nathan and see what you can do to help. Amen. Have your attention. In order to facilitate the potluck, we're going to be clearing out the sanctuary immediately. So if you could take your personal belongings and move them to the back of the room, uh, that would be much appreciated. We'll take all the chairs here, these three wings, and move them to the walls. Thank you.